Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte in Miami. And today we're speaking to Mark Borg Jr. and Daniel Berry co-authors, along with Grant Brenner, of the book Relationship Sanity, Creating and Maintaining Healthy Relationships, published in 2018 by Central Recovery Press. Mark Borg Jr. is a licensed psychologist and psychoanalyst in New York City who has developed theories and implementation strategies for community crisis intervention. His writings on community intervention, organizational consultation, and application of psychoanalytic theory to community crisis intervention have been published in various journals and collected works, and he has presented papers on his theories at academic conferences in the United States, Canada, Scotland, Ireland, Norway, Italy, Greece, Turkey, South Africa, Chile, and Israel. And Daniel Berry is a registered nurse in New York City with background in inpatient home care, and community settings. He currently serves as Assistant Director of Nursing for Risk Management at a public facility serving homeless and undocumented victims of street violence, addiction, and traumatic injuries. In 2015, he was invited to serve as a nurse consultant to a United Nations certified NGO in Afghanistan, promoting community development and addressing women's and children's health issues. You may remember Mark from our 2016 interview on his and his co-author's prior book, Irrelationship, How We Use Dysfunctional Relationships to Hide from Intimacy. I'm very glad to welcome him back, along with Danny, to New Books in Psychology. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here again. (laughs) So as a point of clarification to start, Mark, last time you were on the show with Grant and Danny wasn't able to join us then. And today we're missing Grant, but I get to meet and talk to Danny. So I'll start by asking, is it a challenge for three busy guys like you to get together and write not one, but two books? Uh, that has been among the most <laughs> primary challenges of the last nine years. You know, Grant, Danny, and I got together nine years ago and started thinking about this concept. Then it was called human antidepressant. And, uh, you know, throughout those nine years, we've had periods where we'd meet more than once a week, periods where we'd meet every week, periods where we'd meet once a month. And every, sometimes we actually go months without being able to meet. So, um, it's really very, very uh, time. Time to actually put into this project has been the most precious uh, resource so far. So yes, been very difficult. So and how do you make it work? Us, Go for it, yeah. And all three of us have very busy professional lives and lives outside our professional lives, which not surprisingly make it difficult for us to plan and put aside time where we can all three be at the same place at the same time. And yet you do. And what is it about 
the concept of of a relationship and the the topic of relationships that that drives you so much that that makes you want to put in the work to to write as you have well interestingly we came together around this concept of human antidepressant which is this you know it's like a compulsive caregiving dynamic that i was seeing a lot this is mark in my practice and uh so Interestingly enough, I got together with two other people, uh, one of them being a woman whose relationship had currently fallen apart. And she you know, came to me and she said, you know, my heart is broken, uh, I'm aching, and I really just need a project that I can focus on. And I said, oh, great. I've come up with this concept called human antidepressant. Why don't we get together and start working on that project? Of course, what really turned out is that the project and the human antidepressant process was something that she and I started enacting which is playing out in the process of writing this book. We added a third guy to try to balance it out, and the thing completely exploded. In fact, this woman uh, uh, <laughs> filed a lawsuit where she thought that she had contributed and she wanted a stake in the process. And actually, interestingly, Danny and Grant came in to sort of salvage that process. So in a funny way, this concept of irrelationship, which is a compulsive caretaking routine, it's a dynamic that people play out together, is something that I sort of implemented initially with this other writer. And then Danny and Grant came in to kind of rescue me from that process. So in a funny way, we've been playing out the dynamics of irrelationship together for all of these years. So I, I wouldn't go so far as to, you know, to assess or analyze whether uh, Danny or Grant are human antidepressants or whether the degree to which we are in irrelationship at any particular time or relationship sanity. But I certainly feel um, as the person who you know, invited everybody into this project initially, that, that one of the reasons why I am invested in this process is because I can play this thing out anywhere, anytime. And I have needed to work through this myself in order to have healthy relationships and, and establish relationship sanity for myself. What I'd like to say, uh, kick in here, is that one of the things that doing this project has has underscored for all of us is the ambivalence that all of us feel around intimacy itself, around the self-disclosure that comes with working together closely with one another. And it just so happens, coincidentally, that that's, that's a major theme of what we're writing about, the ambivalence that it seems that everyone we encounter has around intimacy. And that's not necessarily talking about intimacy with a life partner or sexual intimacy. It's obviously not talking about that. It has to do with the, with the self-disclosure, the closeness that develops in, in a regular sharing of, of, of life experience with each other. So let's then get right into that because um, it, it's, you're, you're putting forth an idea that many people may not understand which is that we're scared of intimacy. And let me go directly to a quote from the beginning of the book. Quote, you say, quote, we have found in our work that there is a common but seldom articulated reality for many people. Frightened as we may be of rejection and loneliness, many of us are even more frightened of what may happen if we're discovered and accepted for ourselves as we really are, end quote. And I read this and I, and I think, Really? I thought we all wanted to be known. You're saying we're afraid of this? We do and we don't. 
Right. Once you've shown yourself, well, once you've shown yourself to this person whom you're sharing life with, in a sense, there's nowhere to go. They know to reach. That's right. And I wrote a song back when I was I, when I was young. I was in a punk band, and we were called All Night Rave. And I must have known that I somehow in a nascent, you know, there must have been somewhere something in there that told me I was going to be a psychoanalyst because the song went like this. It went, "I want you, I do, almost as much as I don't." And that sliver between wanting and not wanting someone or something, wanting intimacy, wanting empathy, wanting vulner- to be vulnerable, wanting to have an in- emotional investment. It's not so much that, again, I think that you're hitting on something really important, Eugenio, which is it's not that we don't want it. It's that we want it and we don't want it. And that conflict creates this kind of static place in us where you know we just become stuck. And what we've discovered is that irrelationship is a way of dealing with that stuckness. It's a kind of way of defending against the immensity of that conflict. And it's a defense that two people create together. Mark, just you. Actually... I beg pardon. What? Mark just used what for me is maybe the key word in, in all of this, and that's the word vulnerability. Right. If there's one thing that we're taught not to do in our culture, uh, it's not to expose our vulnerability. And in an intimate relationship, for intimacy to take place, you have to expose your vulnerability to one another. It can't be one exposing his or her vulnerability to the other. It has to go both ways. And it has to be unconditional. But then let's without that and without that exposure, mm-hmm. intimacy cannot take place. I just wanted to unpack that notion of vulnerability because I think it's it might be easy for many of us, for many of our listeners to tell themselves, oh, I have no problem being vulnerable. I open up to my partner. I open up to my friends about everything that's going on in my life. That's not an issue for me. So maybe, maybe you could tell us how you all define what vulnerability is and where is it located? Like what are the things that we're really vulnerable about and don't want to share? Well, I think again, it's not. It's it's really the vulnerability, and this is really what irrelationship and relationship sanity are about. It's not about the vulnerability of we sit down on the couch and we look in each other's eyes and we tell each other our deepest, darkest secrets. It's more like we live our lives together, shoulder to shoulder, and in the process of living our lives, we see how we respond and react to the things that are going on in everyday life. We see what we look like when we wake up in the morning and go to bed at night. We see what happens when we gain a job or lose a job, when we get money or lose money or face a loss. The vulnerability of being exposed in everyday life to another person, and that is exactly what relationship sanity is all about. It's about seeing each other in our vulnerability, accepting that about each other and ourselves and literally passing it back and forth in a, in a reciprocal ongoing way. So, you know, again, these big concepts, intimacy, empathy, vulnerability, and emotional investment, when you just take them as, as solo ideas, you know, again, you can say, I'm invested, I'm intimate, I, you know, whatever, but we're talking not about the way we think about these things. Because thinking about these things and expressing them in thought is one thing. We're talking about the way we actually live in these concepts, the way that we actually play out these concepts day in and day out when we're close to people, especially in romance. I would say next would be family. And then, of course, we'd have a lot of um, you know, examples of people also playing these out in friendships and, in, and at work. Something so when did you decide like that, that- – 
Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Danny. Something I'd like to add there. Uh, an old saying that I made up about this a couple of years ago was, it's one thing to go to bed with someone. It's quite a different thing to wake up with him the next morning. When you wake up with that person the next morning, you're at a low point in everything. You, you don't look your best. You don't necessarily feel your best. Uh, and all the self-consciousness uh, that can come to the surface, can come to the surface in the presence of another person who is seeing you as you really are in that state. That is one of the places where the rubber meets the road in terms of building vulnerability, in, in, in terms of building intimacy in the place of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And, and your last book, Your Relationship, really introduced us to a, a, a way of understanding how it is that we avoid this kind of intimacy, why we avoid it, what's, what makes us anxious about it. Your current book, Relationship Sanity, how does it follow up on that? Where does it go? It starts with that. It starts with the ways that we protect ourselves inadvertently from intimacy, empathy, vulnerability, and emotional investment. And then it gives a direct, really simple, but not at all easy solution, which is you know, that, that irrelationship is about creating a defense against those things, actually playing out the defense against you know, the anxieties associated with these things. And relationship sanity is point blank. It's, it's the cure. It's the solution. And the solution for us is a balance in the giving and receiving elements of relationship. Because one of the interesting things about irrelationship that we discovered and we really honed in on in the next book is that because irrelationship manifests for both people, for both the what we call the performer and the audience, both people are compulsively caretaking in very, very different ways, but both people are compulsively caretaking. So that irrelationship actually operates as a defense against taking in, accepting and making use of what other people have to offer. So relationship sanity has to do with dropping the defense and allowing what other people have to offer to, to, to get in, to have value, to, to, you know, to actually be able to make use of that. So you know, I always think of your relationship as a fire hose, and you're like spraying care at maximum volume, like, you know. And in a fire hose, spraying care and love and affection and whatever else you want to at someone else, there is absolutely no way that anything is going to get back up through the nozzle of that higher fire hose to me. So I'm protected. And I'm protected against allowing that other person to contribute to me. So relationship sanity has everything to do with turning off the nozzle and letting the process of giving and receiving become reciprocal and mutual. So, so this is a concept that is worth uh, breaking down a bit more because I can imagine a lot of listeners thinking, wait a minute, I thought caretaking and caregiving in a relationship was good. Isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing? But you all are suggesting actually caretaking can be compulsive. It'd be great if you could explain what yes. that means. And it can actually work against intimacy, but break down exactly yeah. exactly how that is the case. Okay. Well, I, I use the metaphor of the fire hose, but let's just say it's a wall. It's a, if I'm just giving care and care and care and care, then it's all going outward. And because all the care is going at you or toward you or in you, it is actually operating as a force against allowing you to reciprocate and give care to me. This is something that it, we show over and over again in the examples in the book, how a lot of people deliberately look for partners 
who will allow them to structure the relationship in such a way that they do all the caregiving. And that allows them to be in every way the heavy in the relationship and not to expose their own vulnerability, to be entirely not even a caregiver, but a caretaker. Sometimes we use the term project. One person makes the other person her or his project. And it's it represents a complete imbalance in what's happening. And by the way, neither partner is, is telling the truth to the other about what she or he really needs and wants. What do you mean? Neither is asking is is being straight up about the anxiety that they feel about the closeness that develops as, as they become closer to each other because they've precluded the possibility in the way they've structured the relationship. They've precluded the possibility of even telling the truth about their feelings about anything. They're not operating on a level of candor that makes that possible. Well, because this is a unconscious psychological defense system that operates against experiencing anxiety, they don't know this. You know, it's like that's the tough thing. The caretaker, of course, feels like they're caring for the other person. I can't tell you how many times I've been with a couple and there's a caretaker who's like giving and giving and giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. And I say, whoa, stop being so selfish. And like, you know, you could hear a pin drop, right? Crickets chirping and all that. And the person is mind-boggled by how I could call their compulsive giving selfish. And I explain to the person, if they'll let me, it's because you're giving that you will not allow the other person to give back to you. And when you don't allow the other person to give back to you, they have no sense of what they have to offer having any value. You're basically devaluing the person by not allowing them to reciprocate or give to you. The message that you deliver to somebody when you won't take what they have to give is that they've got nothing good to give. And that the thing that's tricky, though, about this dynamic, because it's a co-created psychological defense and it's two people caretaking, what's hard to explain, though, again, we give lots and lots of examples of this, is that the person who looks like they're receiving in a relationship, that person's caretaking, too. That person's caretaking by allowing the overt caretaker to think and believe that what they have to give is actually being experienced as care. So we call this position the audience, and the audience sits there taking in the performance of the compulsive caretaker, the overt one, and he or she operates in such a way to make that person feel like they have value and that they're accepting the value when they're not. Neither person is showing up emotionally when it's your relationship. Both people together are psychological defended, psychologically defended against the anxieties of, of love. Now, Danny said that oftentimes people who are natural caretakers or, or to use uh, the language you int- just introduced, the performer in the performer audience dynamic, that, that such a person will typically find a relationship in which he or she can position him or herself to be the caretaker. Can the same be said about the care rec- or the ostensible care receiver do these people that's the audience yeah the audience, yeah do yeah. they do they similarly yeah, you know find this oh yeah oh over and over and over and over again i find you know once because again i we started working on this project nine years ago but i've been very interested in this before this so i used to call it human antidepressant because it looked like in my opinion and my experience something that someone was doing to 
someone else, like somebody was compulsively caretaking someone else. But when I really got into the, the study and the research of this thing with Grant and Danny, what we discovered was this isn't something that someone does to someone else. This is something someone does with someone else. So if it's in relationship, every single time that there's a performer, there is an audience. Every single time there's a caretaker, there is a care receiver, ostensibly receiving. They're not actually receiving because they're not taking it in either. In fact, they're feeling insulted. They're feeling like, what the heck? I mean, this person's giving and giving and hasn't even asked what I want. You know, like... They think it's like the it's like the you know the old uh, there used to be old um, you know comic strips where it would have a, a boy scout that would help like an old lady across the street right but this is the example of the old lady who's hitting the kid as he's pulling him across the street saying that I wasn't trying to cross the street mm-hmm. or that's the wrong direction and a great benefit of this for for the audience is that if when the point comes when things start really to go south in the relationship if there's a disaster a blow up the audience is in a position to be able to blame the caregiver for everything that's gone wrong because he's been yeah. doing all the performing. That's right. He's been the, the agenda setter who has determined everything that has, yeah. been, has gone on. Right. So often looks like the scapegoat. Often takes the position of the scapegoat, the martyr, the, the person whose battle cry is, after all I've done for you. <laughs> so then how do you, how do you engage – the person in the role of the audience and what it, what 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 should that person be looking at in his or her own behavior that person is the person who actually in the relationship is feeling uh, overlooked and maligned that person usually they're already halfway out the door and that you're that's a very good question because i actually think number 1 the audience is the power position i think that's the person who holds most of the cards and i think that's the person that you do want to actually go after in terms of finding a way to engage because a lot of times the audience really does just think that they're sitting there you know uh, you know um, with the assumption that they're supposed to be taking in but it's not working they don't know that they're so defended. In fact, they oftentimes – I've seen it in my in, in in my office when I work with couples that the audience is sitting there going like, right, you know, my partner is correct. Like they are giving and giving. They pay the rent. They're paying for therapy. They paid for this. They're doing all that that stuff. They take me to, to, to whatever. You know, they drag me to the 12-step meeting or to the performance. And and so they are kind of there's – this, there's this question mark above their heads like why doesn't it feel good? Why am I not feeling rescued or saved or or helped or cared for? And so, so that's a really hard question to get at. And I think until the caretaker backs off a little bit, you can't really see that the audience is also playing into this thing, that they're also using their reluctance to take in what the other person has to offer as a defense. Against what? Against feeling the anxiety of actually being fully present, exposed, and vulnerable in a relationship. You see, once again, the audience is a person who is not disclosing their real needs, their real desires. So like the performer, they're not exposing their real vulnerability, what they're really anxious about, what they want from someone else. You know, I, I want to just highlight something that came through for me uh, in the book, because you, because you do give lots of examples of real couples having real struggles. You know, but just so our, so our listeners are clear, you know, the examples that you give are not of couples who are, you know, having like a one-time argument over the groceries or where to go for summer vacation. I mean, some of the couples that you describe are, they're in real trouble. They're in real trouble and they 
even though they may not be explicitly separated or, or even talking about separated, they're they're some of the couples you mentioned are like living separate lives just together and are are, are ignoring each other. They're like ships passing in the wind, and you know maybe this is a function of my being maybe a relatively <laughs> young married person. But when I read that, I thought, wow, does how how typical is that in long-term relationships for partners to become so distanced um, that they're they're practically not even in relationship at all anymore? Oh, they deliberately will structure their lives that way. They'll just, they'll make sure that their work lives, the hours that they work during the day, are the opposite of the hours that their partner works, so that they never have to be at home at the same time. They may ostensibly even being occupying the same bed. But for the brief times that they're actually at home in the same place at the same time, each is on his way either to work or to bed. They're not sharing meals. When they find themselves alone together, they really don't know who this person is whom they're sharing a home with. They may be sharing a home, but they're not sharing a life. Right. Right. That, and that's what we really honed in on all those years ago. I mean, that's what I honed in on because I, you know, I, I really, you know, I love working with couples and I specialize in it. So I, a lot of couples were coming to me, you know, with these really interesting, vague concerns. And this is what I kept finding. I kept finding couples who would come into therapy and they didn't even know that the problem was that they were missing each other. They were sleeping in the same bed. And maybe it wasn't even as extreme as Danny mentioned. Maybe it wasn't that they had these separate lives or that they had uh, opposite work schedules. Sometimes it was just as simple as like they, 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 they'd work their nine to five. They'd come home. They'd spend the weekend. They'd do what the, they did with the kids or the family. But even going shoulder to shoulder, they'd find themselves sitting at a restaurant looking out the window or looking at their phone or whatever and just not able to engage. So. In the book, you thankfully <laughs> outline some ways that people can break out of these patterns, and and I think people are probably eager to hear about those. Why don't we start with compassionate empathy? What is that? Well, compassionate empathy really is the opening the door into the give and take that we ultimately talk about as we go through what we call the dream sequence and the 40-20-40. Compassionate empathy is actually the process through which people do start to give and take. Because again, I'll just repeat that the, 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 the very simple definition of relationship sanity is a balance in the giving and receiving in a relationship. So compassionate empathy is that ability to both be sharing with somebody your own personal emotional experience. And you're sharing it, you're giving it, and you're taking it in from the other person. So it is literally the opposite of your relationship. Is there a difference between regular old empathy and, and what you're calling compassionate empathy? We do. We do go into a, uh, in both books, actually, we go into a kind of a sophisticated, more kind of scholarly definition of the difference between compassionate empathy and empathy. And really the difference is in the giving and receiving element of it, that we're really asking people to be much more consciously aware. And we actually have exercises to help people become aware of the giving receiving. Because a lot of times in empathy, yes, I am allowing myself to experience 
whatever it is you're describing to me. Like for instance, if you're talking about you know a painful loss in your life, it's not that that emotion just jumps from you to me. It's that I am willing to go back to a painful loss in my own life. I tend to, when a patient is sharing a deep loss with me, the way that I will share that loss is I will go back to the loss, you know, one of the, one of a loss that happened to me 30 years ago that I still can feel today when I, when I open up to it, which is the loss of my grandmother. So in this process of compassionate empathy, it's not just that you're opening up to me, it's that you opening up to me, open something up in me, and then we are really in that emotional state together. And we have exercises to actually help people express that. And we, we even have an exercise that we call the 40-20-40 that helps people try to get at sharing uh, their accountability for you know, the things that are going on in their relationship. Because if you think about what, what uh, a relationship is, it's a compulsive caretaking that on the surface, it looks like the performer is giving about 99% and it looks like the uh, audience is giving about 1%. In the 40-20-40, we ask the, each person to come, uh, we ask each person to go into uh, you know a more uh, uncomfortable terrain, we ask the performer to back away from the caretaking and allow themselves to only take forty percent responsibility for what's going on in the relationship. We ask the audience to come forward and take forty percent responsibility for what's going on, and then there's that twenty percent in the in the middle that they share. And, and and specifically, what I mean is we we have a process where we ask people to take an issue, a conflict, a problem, and talk about their part in it. What's my responsibility for this issue? And to only speak from their subjective I position. So that obviously finger pointing is not allowed. Taking your partner's inventory is not allowed. One tells the truth about what he or she is feeling and experiencing in this experience that they're sharing without finding fault. We believe that if each partner mutually shares this experience of disclosing his anxiety and the feelings he's having, the result of that is going to be an automatic, almost unconscious opening of the heart to one another in a way that they have probably never done and that perhaps many of our family lives never taught us to do. So it's really completely revolutionary, just telling the truth about how afraid I am. But where do we learn to do that? Yeah, yeah. And uh, of, of course, you're, you're introducing the notion that a lot of these patterns we, we inherit from, from our, our parents or from our, our early childhood experiences, I imagine. And, and I, guess, I guess we repeat them without realizing well, I mean, actually, we, yes. I mean, what we think of, I mean, we go back to a guy named Harold Searles who said something brilliant. He said that he believed that people are natural born caretakers. We come into this planet in a funny way for our own sense of esteem and efficacy. We need to feel that the care that we have to offer is good and that it can actually uh, work. He thought that our first job was to be the caretaker of, say, our mother or our parents early on. And that that was fine. You know, there's, there's, it's great. It's wonderful to be able to give love and care and to be funny and happy and, you know, have our parents, uh, you know, show some kind of positive response to our behavior. But he thought that it could be, and we think that it can be very problematic if that behavior, the natural desire to help our parents feel better, let's say, is met 
in an environment where the parent really is not well. If the parent is, defe- is, is depressed or the parent is extremely unhappy or if the parent is anxious, what happens is that the kid develops a caretaking routine to help the parent so that the parent can parent. And if that's true, if there really is unhappiness in the parent and the child takes on this role of compulsive caretaker, then it's likely that child is going to experience great anxiety about that role. So they're actually playing out this routine with the parent to make the parent feel better. They're feeling terribly anxious. It's working as a psychological defense so that they don't know how anxious they are. And it works. So they carry this routine, this behavior forward into all of their relationships. So they don't know how anxious they are of what exactly? They don't know how anxious – that's a really good question, and I think that's the key question. They don't know how anxious they are about their feeling that their parent is ineffective Mm. as a caretaker. Sorry, Danny, you were going to add something. I was going to say, and so as they go forward in life, they will deliberately seek – intimate relationships or relationships with people who need the kind of caregiving that they learned to give in in their families of origin. They won't be interested in a person who does not need that kind of caretaking. They will seek out someone. That's right. Right. They'll seek out someone who wants that kind of caretaking from them. So then what do you say to a person who maybe as a result of listening to this interview or reading your book or, or through his or her own self-reflection realizes, oh my God, that's me. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to, I, I can't live this way. I've, I've, I am the caretaker. I'm, I'm the guy they're talking about. How does that person today, what can that person do today to start break, not just breaking that pattern, but also involving his or her partner to also start breaking the pattern? Well, so <laughs> that's 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 the million dollar question because <laughs> because because you know we wrote your relationship and at the end of each chapter we had these reflections and we did do this dream sequence and we kind of mentioned the 40 20 40 but what we got at <laughs> in the po- you know at the various podcasts and the uh you know our uh psychology today um, blog and what we kept getting over and over again and hey thank you guys thank you so much thank you for opening our eyes now what you know what the heck are we going to do we're like le- left here with this awareness of your relationship and we don't know what to do with it so that is exactly why Danny Grant and I took on the the, the undertaking of writing uh, relationship sanity because we point blank relationship sanity is is answering each and every one of these uh, readers' questions about how do, we, how do we work through it. And it actually has a lot of exercises that are not just for you as the person who's a compulsive caretaker. It's actually for you and your partner if your partner is willing to join you so that you together can work through your relationship. We call it self-other help because we're, we're not just uh, – we didn't write a book just for one person to read it and say, okay, now I'm better. We wrote it as a book that you can then invite your partner to read with you, and we have exercises that will help you two together work through your relationship. Which begins with the process just of recognizing the vulnerability and anxiety that one feels and then just beginning to call that by its right name to oneself first – and then to share that insight with your partner. And as I said earlier, what we've seen in our experience is beginning the process of exposing yourself to your partner in that way is probably going 
to make that person able to begin to share the similar experience that they are having themselves. So, so that, that, mutual, that mutual sharing of vulnerability is the beginning. And, and that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, as you know, from doing clinical work, sometimes our patients uh, will say, that sounds great, but they need the words. <laughs> can, can, can we help our listeners by maybe sharing an example um, of, of what, what does it sound like when someone does this kind of self-reflection, comes to understand their vulnerability, and, and what do they say to their partner when, when you talk about their sharing their vulnerability? What does that sound like? Well, I, I become so frightened when I become so scared when it makes me so uneasy when yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yeah. yeah. But Danny, Dan, you, I mean, you are the one that told me, I mean, you're the one that I think years ago hit it up right on the head. Danny says that, that really I, that the, the, the SOS of the person in your relationship is really as simple and quiet as I miss you. What do you mean by that? It means I, I, I somehow or other have at least dropped my defenses enough to say to my partner that I miss you. I, I miss you. I've been living this life. We've been going side, we've been, you know, walking side by side, shoulder to shoulder for all this time, but we haven't really been there for or with each other. And I think, you know, most of the time when I hear people really dropping their guard and allowing themselves to be vulnerable, they're able to say that in this life that looks like we're living together, we haven't actually been together. And so I miss you. And interestingly, when people begin to engage that process, they begin to rediscover the person that they fell in love with to begin with. That's right. That's who they miss. You know, I miss that person. I mean, you know, you know, again, you know, I always think it's great when couples come in and they can ex- describe a really wonderful honeymoon period. Then they can describe what it was like to get through that honeymoon period and to survive the disappointments afterwards. And what did they do next? Did they form an alliance? Were they partners? Were they companions? Were they friends? Were they, were they lovers? I mean, all these different roles that two people can take on together, but do they, can they, will they maintain some kind of emotional connection? And I find that if it's in a relationship, no, they, they have to protect themselves against that kind of exposure. But I can really see how if a person gets to a place where they really realize consciously how much they miss their partner and then find a way in a moment to authentically express that to their partner. I I could see how that would kind of melt or loosen or awaken something in the partner who's hearing that and, and, and hopefully lead, lead to a reciprocal kind of um, openness and vulnerability on both parts. Exactly. Exactly. That that's why I think that's the I always think about the, the kids book Horton Here's a Who. Do you guys know that I don't. book? <laughs> All right. It's about this okay, so it's about this whole society that is existing within a in a dandelion and you know, they're about to be thrown into some dandelion factory or something unless Horton, who's an elephant and has these huge ears, he can hear them. But unless somebody from this within the dandelion can get the, the message across that there's this whole society in there, the dandelion is going to be destroyed. And it was only the voice of this little kid because the whole society is clanging in their musical instruments and bombs are going off and nobody can hear. But this little kid says, yop. 
And that little yop somehow penetrates and it gets through the dandelion and to the whole outside world and the dandelion is saved. So I think that we're looking for something like I miss you as a yop. It's that message that gets, like you said, Eugenio, it gets into the heart of the other person. And then it opens us up to a kind of what I would think of as a, and I do think of as a natural state, a natural state of reciprocity. Back to what Searles said. He said, we are natural caretakers. There's nothing wrong with that. The only problem in your relationship isn't the caretaking, it's the imbalance in the caretaking and the use of caretaking as a defense against being intimate with our partners. And that's why we call this book no more and no less than relationship sanity. It's really not a magic formula. It's not a magic word. It's simple sanity, telling the truth about oneself to each other. That's how closeness, intimacy is built. Well, gentlemen, uh, we are almost out of time as, uh, as before. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, so much more in the book that readers can find that we didn't get to cover today. So I really urge uh, listeners to, to check it out. Before we go, though, why don't you tell us about what you've got going on now and what's coming next? Uh, so we are now working on our proposal for our third book. It is called Making Your Crazy Work for You. Uh, and it's about what it's really about what your relationship looks like inside the individual. The first two books were really about the couple and about the, the person in relationship with the world. And in this third book, we're really going very deeply into how a relationship develops and what it looks like inside this the, the, the person, her himself. And will that be the will you the three of you be collaborating on that book? Yes, we we are collaborating on that yes. book. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a very exciting project. Uh, I hope, as I said to you last time, that when it comes out, you let me know and we will have you back on the show. We'd love to. That would be dynamite. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you again. The book is entitled Relationship Sanity, Creating and Maintaining Healthy Relationships with my written by my guests, Mark Bohr, Borg Jr., Daniel Berry, and the absent um, but uh, very much missed Grant Brenner. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you.